Hi, my name is Jonathan Pezza, and welcome to episode six of the weekly podcast, Pulp, where we take a journey, one page at a time, through the literary underground of pulp fiction. Today, we're picking back up with the gang from the Circle Six Ranch in the second part of Isabel Ostrander's Two Guns Sue. The novel was originally presented over four issues starting in the February 4th, 1922 Argosy All Story Weekly. Now, pulp magazines kept their prices affordable in order to ensure that audiences in the working class could afford these low-cost luxury items. In 1922, when this story came out, the average income was just under $32 a week, which, when counting for inflation, would equal $488 in today's terms. Much like today, the majority of people in the U.S. were living in the low to lower middle income bracket, and in the years after World War I, saw a steady decline in the quality of their life as jobs became harder to come by, with little or no worker protections. We like to think of the Roaring Twenties as a time of excess, and they were, if you were one of the lucky few who were able to afford it. But for most people, life was the constant push and pull of manual labor and stress without the social and economic protections we enjoy today. It's easy to understand why these 120 to 150 page magazines were such effective escapes from that stress into worlds of fantasy, adventure, romance, and mystery. I can't help but feel that there is a deep connection between the culture in Two Guns Sioux and the time in which it was written. Instead of being set in the midst of the frontier expansion when life in the wilderness was a constant struggle between man and nature, we meet our main characters in the Poindexter family just as the American West has become largely tamed. The intrepid men and women who worked so hard to establish civilization in these remote locales find themselves once again being controlled by the old money Eastern establishment that they had worked so hard to escape in coming West. Can this family that's worked so hard over two generations to create a life and a home on the edge of the world defend it from those who want to take away everything they've built? Well, let's find out as we jump back into Two Gun Sue. So, sit back, turn out the lights, and let me tell you a story. Chapter 2 The Hold Up At an hour before sunset, another girl was approaching the Circle Six from quite a different direction. Long-limbed and deep-chested with the superb lines of budding maturity, her skin was a tanned, clear brown, and brown too was the soft hair, wind-blown now, although it glinted ruddily where the slanting rays of the sun reached it beneath her hat. Her eyes were gray-blue and steady, with the depth which comes from looking into far, vast stretches, and her small chin was firmly dominant. There was no hint of wariness in either the girl or the mount, Though they had ridden hard and far, but as they came parallel with the first line of barbed wire which marked the domain of the Circle Six, she leaned forward and murmured caressingly, Easy now, Moon Lady. We're almost home now, and the last few miles are always the longest, you know. Suddenly she straightened in the saddle, shading her eyes with her hands, for, from the mist of a rising dust cloud, upon a branch road to the right there came a sharp, uneven pounding of uncontrolled hoofbeats, and the figure of a bay horse running crazily with empty saddle and swinging stirrups bore down almost directly upon her. As it neared, the girl saw that the white markings upon its breast and shoulder were splashed with crimson. Uttering a low exclamation, she wheeled. The black mare leaped forward beneath her touch and riding at a wild curve upon the riderless horse, she seized the loose rein in a grip of steel 
and shouldered the crazy animal safely around the turn to bring him to a halt. Bullseye! Something very like a sob tore its way from between the girl's set teeth, but her eyes flashed. Bullseye, they got you! Where is your master? The horse, trembling in every limb, whinnied softly with pain, but the wild look faded out of the great bloodshot eyes and he rolled them at her. It was as if he were trying with all his might to speak. The girl examined the wound in the shoulder and then cast the rein free. Home, bullseye. You can make it, old boy. Go home and tell him what has happened to Lee. Responding to the urge of her tone as if to the sting of a whip, bullseye gathered his all but spent forces and sprang staggeringly forward along the road which led towards the distant ranch gates. The girl felt for an instant at the leather belt low hung about her waist, and then wheeled the black mare into the byway, straining her eyes through the settling dust ahead. If Lee had been riding at the extreme end of the east section, and he had been as badly wounded as his horse, she might not find him in time. Even now, it might be too late. The state road crossed this a mile or so ahead, and it might be that someone had seen the riderless horse, recognizing his markings and giving the alarm. But few of the neighboring ranchmen would be traversing it at this time of the afternoon, and the highway was principally given over to the occasional touring motorists. If the darkness should come before she found Lee, stifling an unmistakable sob this time, the girl bent low over the neck of the black mare, urging her to the limit of her speed. The lines of barbed wire gleaming in the last rays of the setting sun flashed past her on either hand like streaks of fire, and the dust rose in spiral whirls behind. She neared the state road, and then, all at once, Above the rhythmic beat of Moon Lady's flying feet, there came to the girl's ears a humming roar of a high-powered car, still subdued by distance but rapidly approaching. With a light but firm touch, she slowed the black mare into a loping stride and rode out upon the highway where she halted squarely in its center with one hand upraised. But the huge oncoming car showed no disposition to stop, it advanced upon her with undiminished speed, while its driver and the figure beside him waved peremptory arms and a masculine shout was lost in the roar of the engine. The girl did not move or lower her hand, but the other crept to her holster and came away with something leveled and gleaming. The car careened suddenly with a shriek of outraged brakes and came to a jarring stop not two lengths from Moon Lady's tense but immovable figure. Sorry, but I'll have to borrow your car. The girl's tone rang out clearly and firmly above the imprecations of the man beside the chauffeur on the front seat. There's a man hurt. A hold up! The hysterical scream came in a high feminine voice from the tonneau. Briggs, why did you stop? Why didn't you run the wretch down? It, it's a woman. The chauffeur began apologetically, but the girl on the black mare was already returning her pistol to its holster. I didn't mean to frighten anybody, but you wouldn't slow up and I've got to have your car, she explained. There has been an accident. Drive on, Briggs. A bulky form swathed in veils and a silk duster rose suddenly in the rear seat of the car. Dakin, are you a worm? Briggs, drive on, I say. If that creature doesn't get out of the road... Two hands flew to the girl's belt this time. There was a quick turn of slender wrists and twin muzzles gleamed straight from her hips at the occupants of the car. Get out. She spoke low but very distinctly. This is a hold-up if you like. 
but it is a matter of life and death. There is a wounded man out there on the range, and I have to get to him. Get out, all of you, except the driver. The large woman had shrunk back with a second horrified shriek at the sight of the guns, but now a taller, more slender figure rose beside her, and a cold, languid, infinitely contemptuous voice drawled, Father, are you going to permit us to be despoiled of our car and forced out upon the road by any such flimsy excuse as that? The woman wouldn't dare fire. A sharp bark and a single shot cleaving straight upward into the air caught the word from her lips. The black mare's ears twitched, but she gave no other sign. Not so the occupants of the car. The chauffeur settled matters for himself by promptly sitting back and elevating both hands above his head. The large lady shrieked once more and covered her eyes, and the second man beside the driver opened the door and stepped spryly down into the road, sweeping off his goggles and cap as he did so to reveal a head sparsely covered with grizzled hair. We are at your service, madame, he remarked with grim humor and turned to the tonu door. My dear, you should know by experience that I never take issue with a woman, much less one who has so convincing an argument on her side. The tall feminine figure alone had remained unmoved, and now, Disdaining his hand, it descended and stood waiting while the elderly man assisted the stouter occupant of the tonneau to alight. Meanwhile, still covering them, the girl had slipped from her saddle and replacing one pistol, she turned to the black mirror and then touching lightly on the flank. Go home, moon lady, she commanded as she had to bullseye. They'll know I've gone for Lee. The mare gave one questioning glance from her mistress to the strange monster of the machine, and then trotted off obediently back up the side road while the girl approached the car and the trio who stood beside it. If you take that road to the first turning on your right, and then follow the wire fencing, it'll lead you straight to the gates of a ranch where they'll take you in, she announced. Your car will be brought back to you there as soon as I've done with it. The bulky figure had shrunk back in horror at her approach but the taller one turned away with a mere shrug while the elderly man asked, Can you tell me how far it is to the hospitable gates you mention? He spoke with an ironic courtesy, but the girl appeared oblivious to his sarcasm. About six miles, four after you strike the fence line. You'll find a town with a hotel of a sort, a few miles further should you prefer that, and they'll lend you horses at the ranch if you can ride them. There was no hint of contempt in her matter-of-fact tone, but the elderly man reddened slightly. If this ranch you mention is the nearest, I fear we must endeavor to reach it and throw ourselves upon the mercy of its owner. But you seem confident of our welcome. In this part of the country, we don't refuse our help in time of need, or close our doors to anyone. She mounted to the seat beside the chauffeur, the pistol still resting lightly upon hip furthest from him. Turn this car and drive back as fast as you can until you come to a break in the fence where the wires are down, on the right side of the road. Then cut straight through it. Yes, ma'am, he responded with alacrity. It's back about three miles. Saw it when we passed, and there's a dead horse lying there. A, a sort of calico pony. Without a word or glance at his employers, he turned the switch key and stepped on the starter. With the first low humming of the engine, the car began to back in a sweeping curve to turn and shoot off down the highway in a screening cloud of dust. A little later... When Garrison Chandler, having taken leave of Sylvia at the gates of the Circle Six, was loping slowly toward the Bar D for supper and a smoke with the boss of the outfit, he came upon a strange group in the road. 
A tall, willowy girl whose loosened veils revealed hair of a brilliant gold and almost classically perfect features was moving forward with a languid grace which yet outstripped the pace of a small, elderly man and a massively stout woman who leaned heavily upon him and expelled each breath with a groan. The young man pulled up his bronco at the same instant that the trio halted, and they stared at each other for a long moment in mutually astounded recognition. Gary, the girl cried at last. Gary, where in the world? Chandler, by all that's wonderful, the elderly man unceremoniously withdrew his arm from that of the stout companion and hastened forward while she echoed weakly, Mr. Chandler. The young man had flung himself from his horse and grasped a hand each of the girl and her father. Daisy, Mr. Atchison. You are the last people I would have expected to encounter. And Mrs. Atchison, too, he advanced towards her, his quick eye taking in their motoring attire and generally disheveled appearance. You're not on a walking tour, surely. Call it rather a forced march, my boy. Dakin Atchison spoke with the same grim, dry humor which he had evinced a short time before. We were held up a while back and our car commandeered by an enterprising young female road agent. Commandeered, Mrs. Atchison interrupted in high dudgeon. The car was stolen, Mr. Chandler, and our chauffeur kidnapped. We were compelled to abandon it and all our hand luggage at the point of a pistol. Two pistols, mother, Daisy corrected. Do let us have all the thrills. And we were fired upon, supplemented Mrs. Atchison, her tones deepening tragically. It was a miracle that we were not all murdered in cold blood. What's this? Gary stared from one to the other of them in incredulous amazement. You cannot be serious. There are no road agents left in this part of the country to say nothing of female ones. So I would have been willing to swear an hour ago, but I have had reason to change my mind, Atchison remarked. The young woman most certainly meant business, even though the single shot fired was into the air. And our chauffeur recognized the signs. You remember, Briggs. I selected him to pilot us on this trip because I suspect him of an origin in the gangster element of the Lower East Side, and although I did not actually anticipate trouble of this sort, I thought that he would have had more nerve in a possible emergency than the impeccable Francois. He put up his hands without a murmur, however, and I cannot say that I blame him considering that the lady had us covered from the start. But it's all too utterly impossible to believe. Gary exploded. You must have been mistaken for some other party and made the butt of some stupid sort of practical joke. If you think it could be anyone's conception of a joke to force a person in my state of health to leave her car at the mouth of a, a gun, Mr. Chandler, and walk for miles... Mrs. Atchison's voice ended in a groan. You spoke of two pistols. Gary turned helplessly to the younger woman. Was there an accomplice? How many were there in this gang which held you up? Only one, Atchison replied before his daughter could speak. The young lady was alone on a great black horse, and she operated both guns most effectively from the hip. From the hip? Two guns sue, the thought flashed blindingly across Gary's mind, and for a moment his senses reeled. It was utterly absurd, of course, and yet what could be more unbelievable than the actual presence here before him in this western wilderness of this astute Wall Street financier and his luxury-loving wife? 
to say nothing of the very girl who had been in his thoughts that afternoon, as the epitome of incongruity with his own immediate surroundings. Choking back an almost hysterical tendency to laugh, the young man eyed the older one speculatively. A girl on a great black horse, hadn't he heard somewhere from Big Matt, perhaps, that Susanna Poindexter rode a black mare which she had broken herself? If there could be some possible explanation. But didn't the young woman say anything? Gary stammered at last. You spoke of her commandeering the car. Didn't she offer any reason for holding you up in that fashion? She blocked the road and drew her gun when Briggs wouldn't stop the car, Atchison began again. But once more his wife interrupted. The creature uttered some far-fetched excuse about someone having been hurt and it being a matter of life and death. But anyone could tell by the way she handled those dreadful pistols that she was a desperate character. She pointed both of them at us when I ordered Briggs to drive on and force her to get out of the way after he had stopped to avoid running her down. I consider it a mercy that we were not all killed outright. The young woman said it was a matter of life and death emergency, Gary repeated slowly. She compelled you to leave your car and then drove off with Briggs? Yes, Atchison confirmed. After dismounting and sending her horse back along the road which she directed us to take. And where did she say that road would lead? Astonishment had given place to eager interest in the young man's tones. To a ranch where she seemed quite assured that we would find hospitality. The financier was eyeing him narrowly. Look here, Chandler. You know something. What is it? What did this melodramatic performance mean? I have no more idea than you, Mr. Atchison, Gary responded. Did this enterprising road agent offer any assurance of returning your stolen property? She said the car would be brought to us there when she had finished with it. Daisy spoke suddenly. She also mentioned a town with a hotel further along if we preferred that to the ranch. Who is she, Gary? She was quite a remarkable-looking young person who sat her horse like a man and issued orders as though she were accustomed to being obeyed. I believe that you know her. I don't, he disclaimed. I never saw her in my life, but if it is the woman I think it may be, I should feel inclined to believe that she had a very urgent reason which justified her, in her mind at least, in commandeering your car even at the point of a gun. Two guns. This road leads to the Circle Six Ranch, and I have met the chap who owns it. Let me show you the way, and I am sure that you will be received with all the hospitality of the world. And it is actually your opinion that my car and hand luggage will be returned to me intact to say nothing of Briggs? Atchison demanded. The ghost of a smile flickered in Gary's eyes, but he responded gravely. If I were you, I should feel quite as assured of both Briggs and the car as though they were in the garage at home. Chapter 3. An Unexpected Ally The heart of the girl in the car had given a wild leap of exultation when Briggs spoke of the dead calico pony, lying by the road where the wires were down. Lee had been able to put up a fight, at least, and an examination of the Pinto's body might reveal how far he could have run before he dropped, so that she might calculate the approximate distance to the place where Lee must be lying. She did not even glance back at the trio left stranded in the road, but covertly studied the part of the chauffeur's face which was visible beneath his visored cap and goggles. His nose was short and impudently upturned, 
but the smooth-shaven lips were firm and the square jaw lean and pugnacious, and healthily tanned. The red-brown hair beneath the cap showed a tendency to curl close-cropped though it was, and there was a boyish jauntiness to the set of his broad shoulders as if, instead of being cowed by this adventure, he was thoroughly enjoying it. Was the man hurt bad, ma'am? Briggs did not take his eyes from the road as he asked the question, but the friendly interest in his tone was disarming after the strain of the last few minutes, and the girl replied frankly, I don't know. I'm afraid so. His horse was making for home shot in the shoulder. I thought as much when I see the other one lying there. I says to myself that there'd been some sort of scrap, and I, and I would have stopped right then and there, only... Well, you saw the kind of folks I'm working for, ma'am. Don't you think I'd have run you down, though? I'd have ditched this bus first. He spoke with an honest sincerity there was no mistaking, and the girl relaxed her tense vigilance with a sigh of relief. I wasn't afraid, and whatever trouble there has been here, your people won't be molested. They'll reach the ranch I spoke of safely and be well cared for, if that old lady can walk a few miles. The shoulders beside her heaved slightly in a chuckle from Briggs's lips. It would be worth a month's pay to have Mrs. Atchison hear you call her that, ma'am. And I guess she can make it, though I don't believe she's walked a block in ten years. He added abruptly in a changed, sober tone. We're getting near there now, and you needn't keep that gun trained on me. I'm, I'm with you. You may want both of yours if there's likely to be any little mix-up. And I guess from what I've just seen that you're able to handle them, ma'am. But if you feel you can trust me with my own, it's right under your seat there. Of course, you only got my word for it that I won't double-cross you. He turned then for an instant to face her, and the girl looked into the pair of deep brown eyes, as confident of being accepted in good faith as those of a friendly, intrepid dog. Accustomed to quick decisions, the girl nodded and slipped her pistol back once more into its holster. Your word is good enough, I'm sure, but I don't believe that there will be any further gunplay. The man we've got to find and bring in is my brother and the only enemies he has are some rustlers, cattle thieves, and half-breed Mexicans, for the most part, who've been running off our cows, she explained quickly. That is our ranch there on the other side of the fence. Gee, all those miles? And my party thought first that you were sticking them up for the bankroll. He chuckled once more and then exclaimed, Here we are. I'll need the speed that we've got to hurdle that ditch, but we can come back and have a look at the horse. Hold tight, ma'am. The heavy car swerved, tilted sickeningly, and then seemed for an instant to hurl itself through space, landing with a crashing jar which shook every bone in the girl's body as it plowed through the break in the fence and over the uneven ground for a few rods. Then, with another protesting screech of the brakes, it halted. It had scarcely come to a stop when the girl leaped from it and, with the chauffeur close at her heels, ran back through the gap with its trailing wires to where the dead animal lay. It was a Mexican pinto, a wretched specimen of its kind. The lean barrel and flanks roweled and scarred from past ill usage and still flecked with bloody lather. Blood had formed in a wide pool, too, from the mouth and nostrils, and there was a bullet wound in the chest. Maybe you recognize him by the markings? Briggs suggested. He must have been stole, too, away back when he was worth stealing, for it looks as though some sort of brand has been burned off him. There and again there on the hoof. The girl shook her head. Some of the punchers might know him, but whatever identification marks there were on the saddle have been ripped away. You can see the leather is newly cut. He was shot through the lungs and can't have gone far. She rose from her knees in the trampled earth and stood gazing back over the range with straining eyes. 
That gang was pretty bold about it. Or do they usually pull off a trick like this in daylight out here? The chauffeur was following her gaze. We didn't pass a living soul on the state road for more than 50 miles coming along, though, so maybe they wasn't taking so much of a chance at that. They must have known where my brother was riding line today and lay in wait for him. The girl's lips tightened. We ought to be able to follow their trail in for a short distance anyway. There was more than one of them, you think, ma'am? This tall grass is trampled down, but it's kind of a narrow line. The chauffeur paused uncertainly as his unaccustomed eyes roved over the patches of crushed mesquite. There were two of them. They rode in single file. The girl went slowly forward following the fresh trail. The other horse was bigger, but the pinto led. See where he circled around and doubled back? That's when they were looking for their man. Gee, Briggs remarked again in immense respect. It don't mean anything to me, ma'am. I would think I was going some if I could tell the make of a tire by the tracks in the road, but this beats it. Looks though as if he'd made for that hollow over there, don't it? The trail was indeed leading in ever-narrowing circles towards a slight depression in the rolling ground fringed with low scrub brush. And as they neared it, the girl paused and her breath caught in her throat. The rank grasses at her feet were blotched here and there with ominous splashes of reddish-brown. That's only where the circus pony back there got it, ma'am, Briggs ventured consolingly. The girl shook her head. There are hoofprints of a single horse. It must have been poor Bullseye, and my brother can't be far if... Her voice died away in her throat, and Briggs asked suddenly in a lowered tone, Do you know if there's a rock over there, behind that bunch of bushes? She followed the direction of his pointing finger, and her body tensed, for through the elongated shadows cast by the low brush, she saw that just beyond them, there loomed a darker form, as though something were crouched or lying motionless. Without a word, the girl handed one of her pistols to her companion, and then stooping low started to creep towards it, but Briggs placed himself before her. No, ma'am, he whispered determinedly. I'm going first. Cautiously, crouching almost to the ground, he circled around the clump with the girl following closely after, until they came upon the body of a man. He was lying upon his back with his arm thrown across his face, and one leg doubled oddly beneath him. And at the first glimpse of the still figure, the girl gave a little sobbing cry and darted forward to fall upon her knees beside it. Gently lifting the limp arm, she drew it down to the side of the unconscious form and raised the head to cradle it against her knee. The face so revealed was that of a very young man, scarcely more than a boy, and its resemblance to her own was unmistakable, even though it was cast in a heavier masculine mold. His hair, however, was yellow, save where an ugly crimson streak matted it dangerously close to the temple and the lashes which swept the cheeks, unnaturally pallid now, beneath their tan, glinted like gold. Is it him? Briggs asked superfluously, and then laid a practiced thumb and forefinger upon the flaccid wrist. He's got a nasty sideswipe on the head, ma'am, and I don't like the way that leg is crumpled under him, but he ain't dead, by a long shot. She glanced up for a moment, and he saw to his inward relief that there was no tears in her eyes, but rather a bright, hard light, and her voice was curiously even and steady as she replied, It is my brother. His forehead and scalp were just grazed by the bullet, but his leg is broken, of course. I've seen more than one of our boys like that, and I know. We'll have to carry him back to the car. I forgot. 
I've got something that'll maybe do some good first. Briggs rose and then hesitated. You ain't afraid of being left here alone for a minute till I come back, are you? A look was his only answer, and as she bent once more over the boy's body, the chauffeur turned and sped away to where they had left the car, just inside the fence. When he returned bearing a vacuum bottle and a small bag, he found that the girl had somehow managed to straighten her brother out upon the ground, and was cutting away the stained and sodden cloth from about his knee. Gee, that's bad, Briggs knelt beside her. Got another ball through the kneecap, didn't he? It's lucky Mrs. Atcherson was such a bug about carting a first aid kit with her. She's got enough in here for a young hospital, and there's hot coffee in that bottle. Together they bandaged the boy's head and shattered knee, and then, raising him to a half-sitting posture, they forced a little bit of warm coffee between his lips. He gulped and moaned faintly, but gave no further sign, and the girl looked up once more at her companion. It'll be just as well, perhaps, if he doesn't regain consciousness until we get him back to the ranch, and one of the boys can ride into Dexter for the doctor, she remarked still in that level, unemotional tone. The pain is likely to be pretty bad in that knee. We can carry him between us to the car. No, ma'am, Briggs dissented once more. You just stand aside, and I can carry him easy. Is Dexter the town you spoke about a while back to the old man? Mr. Atchison, I mean. Yes. Hadn't you better get the car out into the road again before we put my brother into it? That hurdle over the ditch. I did already, ma'am, when I went back for the kit. He paused and added slyly, I wouldn't be surprised if the ranch we're headed for is the same one you directed my party to. It is. It's the Circle Six. The girl looked somewhat doubtfully from her brother's recumbent form to the chauffeur. Are you sure you can carry him alone? Watch me. Briggs smiled and with a swift but gentle movement gathered the boy up in his arms and strode off through the gathering dusk, while she followed with the bag and bottle. The car was at the side of the road, headed once more in the direction in which it had originally been traveling. The girl settled herself in the tonneau, supporting her brother in her arms as the chauffeur eased him down beside her, and they started slowly upon the homeward way. As they turned into the branch road, Briggs glanced over his shoulder. All right, ma'am. Ain't shaking him up too much, am I? No, my brother hasn't moved. For the first time, she smiled faintly. You've been awfully good. I don't know how I'd have managed without you. Anyone would have done as much. That portion of his face which was visible beneath the goggles reddened, however, at her praise. The reason why I asked you about Dexter was because this bus can travel faster than any horse. And if you'll send a man with me to show me the way so I won't lose any time, I'll drive in for the doctor as soon as I get you to the ranch. The twilight was deepening into dark when, just before they reached the gate of the Circle Six, a whirlwind cavalcade swept from it and dashed furiously down the road towards them, with Wes Hayward in the lead and Tad Mason, Link Dole, and several more strung out behind him. Briggs slowed down and the group separated as they came on and drew up on each side of the car. Miss Sue! Wes gulped. You found him. Gosh almighty, is he hurt bad? I'm afraid so. A shot just grazed his head, but there's another through his kneecap, Susanna responded. Who done it? The others had crowded their broncos closer. I don't know, but there's a dead pinto back there on the state road where our wires are down. She shifted her burden slightly, and a low moan came from the boy's white lips. Some of you might recognize him by the markings. I reckon we don't need to see him to figure out what outfit he belongs to. Wes turned with a quiet menace to the chauffeur. And you, 
You're the feller that had to be held up to make you stop. We've been hearing all about it from the gray-muzzled old coyote that blew in the ranch with the two females. You! An ominous murmur arose from the others and Susanna cried, No, Wes. He only obeyed orders at first and he's been splendid. I never should have been able to bring Lee in without his help. Let one of the boys lead your bronc home and you get in with me. The change was effected and the car started off slowly once more. The others fell in behind. Except for Tad Mason, who had a sign from the foreman galloped off down the road. We'd have been out looking for you before this, Miss Sue, but Clint brought in word that the wires were down away over on the ridge to the west section, beyond the creek, and we kitted out over there, West explained. That must have been just a blind to draw as many of you as possible away from this end of the range. Susanna had lowered her voice. You think it was Jake Brower? Him or some of that greaser outfit of his, and... Sheriff and two of his deputies are hunting him now, but they say he ain't showed up around Dexter for two or three days, nor Pedro Ruiz or Felix Maseka either. We just naturally gotta run that outfit out of the country, but we can't do it on the say-so of... He hesitated, and Susanna finished for him. Of the Del Rio girl. She can't be so bad, Wes. Remember how she worked over the boys who were hurt when Montana Dan tried to shoot up the whole town? Good or bad, Miss Sue. Felix Masega's mixed up with this business with Jake for sure. When we got back to the ranch house, we found that Bullseye had come in, shot through the shoulder, and then Moon Lady. We knew you must be with Lee somewheres then. We was just riding out to find you when out of the ranch house comes his little old cuss madder than Bobcat. With a yarn about being held up by a... Words evidently failed the foreman, and again Susanna supplied them. A woman road agent. You knew, of course, that it was I. I suspicioned it before he said ten words, of course, after them hosses had come in, and the, and the look on Miss Sylvie's face when she followed him out would have told me anyways. He paused as they turned in at the gates and added, I opine the boys would have strung him up, but there weren't time. No, Wes, Susanna replied gravely. These people are our guests, as long as they remain at the Circle Six and they must be treated with every courtesy. So please pass the word on to the boys. When we get Lee into the house, Link or one of the others must go in the car here with this man to Dexter in order to show him the road and bring out Dr. Rankin. If the doc ain't off on one of his bootlegging trips or hitting up what's left of the last one, Wes responded skeptically. He's the only one nearer than Mammon City anyways, so we'll have to chance it. Briggs had brought the car to a gentle halt before the door of the ranch house, and as he descended and opened the tonneau door, the light streamed forth and Sylvia's voice quavered. Oh, Sue, is that you? Has something happened to Lee? There are some perfectly wonderful people here from New York City, and they told me of the dreadful thing you'd done. Go back, retorted Susanna briefly. Lee is hurt, but not badly. Keep those people out of the way, and I'll call you when I need you. Lee is my brother, too. There was indignant protest very close to tears in Sylvia's voice, but she retreated nevertheless, leaving the door wide, and Briggs began tentatively. If you'll let me carry him in, ma'am. I opine that we can tend to that without your help, young feller, interrupted West jealously as the rest of the escort drew up on their broncos. But again Susanna intervened. Of course you and the boys can, Wes, but I told you before that if it hadn't been for this young man's help and kindness, I could never have brought Lee home. 
Let him give you a hand and we'll put Lee on the couch in the living room till Dr. Rankin comes. Together, Wes and Briggs carried the still unconscious boy into the spacious room, while the punchers dismounted and crowded about the doorway muttering in subdued fashion among themselves. Then the grimly taciturn Link Dole started off with Briggs for Dexter. The punchers turned their broncos into the corral and made their way to the cookhouse, and Suzanne was left alone with her brother. But not for long. Even as she bent over him to moisten the bandage about his head, a quick but light step sounded behind her, and the little elderly grizzled man appeared. It seems that we owe you an apology, madame. He spoke in a subdued, dry tone. My name is Dakin Atchison, and I trust your brother has not been severely injured? Had you explained, we should have been only too glad to take you back to the scene of the, uh, uh, accident. And subject your family to the possibility of a real-life shooting party? Suzanne asked coldly. As I remember, I wasn't given the opportunity for an explanation of any sort. That was, uh, entirely the fault of Amelia, my wife. Atchison said quickly, but still in that subdued tone with a side glance to the still figure on the couch. She has, a most positive disposition. However, you will admit, my dear young lady, that your argument was, uh, most effective. I understand that my chauffeur has gone for a physician to attend your brother, but in the meantime, my object in intruding upon you is to offer my services, if I can be of use to you in any way. Thank you, Susanna added pointedly. I hope that my sister has made you and your family comfortable. Oh, quite. He hastened to assure her and then hesitated. I have learned that the uh, hotel in town a few miles away, which you suggested, while excellent of its type, would not uh, be pleasing to Mrs. Ashton and our daughter. And the nearest one of the sort which we are accustomed to is in a place called Mammon City. Will you be so good as to tell us how far that is and if the roads are quite safe at night? Mrs. Atchison, as you know, is nervous and highly strung and, in spite of her appearance, far from well. Mr. Atchison, Susanna interrupted with a calmness bordering on exasperation. Such hospitality as the Circle Six can boast, we offer you gladly. Until Mrs. Atchison feels able to continue her journey, please make yourself as much at home as you find possible in these unaccustomed surroundings. Cook will serve dinner in a little while. And in the meantime, I feel that my brother needs my undivided attention. I hope that under the circumstances you will forgive my unceremonious appropriation of your car this afternoon. And if you require anything, my sister will be only too glad to play hostess in my stead. Stammering his thanks, the elderly little man accepted the hint and withdrew. A moment later, Lee Poindexter opened his eyes. Sue! It was Jake Brower! He got me! This episode was co-produced by Melissa Starr. The music in today's episode was provided by EpidemicMusic.com. If you like Pulp, please check out our sister podcast, The Curious Matter Anthology. It's a series that adapts short stories from famous authors in science fiction and horror into full-cast, cinematically produced audio dramas, including a five-part miniseries presentation of Philip K. Dick's Second Variety. You can find Curious Matter Anthology on any of the podcast platforms of your choice or at www.curiousmatterpodcast.com. We release a new episode of Pulp every week, so make sure to subscribe for free on the platform of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating or review. Every star helps.
You can also follow the show on Twitter at pulpthepodcast.com or reach out to me directly at jonathan at pulpthepodcast.com. I'm Jonathan Pezza, your host, and thank you for listening.